Well, here we are, the absolute last sermon in this book. We spent some weeks and months now working through Joshua, and if you've been here, uh, I hope you've uh, enjoyed going through this book as I have. Uh, this evening, we're going to look at what's the last pericope, the last section, that would be Joshua 24, verses 29 through 33. You'll find that on page 199 if you're utilizing a pew Bible. This is Joshua chapter 24, verses 29 through 33, page 199, if you're using a pew Bible. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention as it is being read. The word of God. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which were the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Again, our Lord, we ask that you would bless our time now and cause us to see exactly what you would have us to so that we might grow into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if this is weird or not, but there are times when I start reflecting on how different everyone is, but then also how much we have in common. Every single one of us, for instance, have our own distinct fingerprints that no one else in existence has ever had. Think about how crazy that is. Billions of people have existed in the world, but no one else has ever had your set of fingerprints. To this day, I can still make the statement that no one except me has ever attended elementary, middle, and high school while living in the house I grew up in. I'm pretty sure everyone in here has their own where I'm unique, here's where I'm unique story. And then there's the commonalities among us. Two major ones come to mind. All of us came into existence through what God referred to as fruitful multiplication. And all of us have bodies that start off with the appearance of, of newness and then slowly succumb to visible decay, then ultimately we die. Through all that, and there's a whole lot that I want to see here uh, this evening, but through all that, here's a question that I'd like you to ask yourself this evening. As a Christian, how will you be remembered after you finish your race on this side of life? How would you be remembered? This evening's passage immediately throws us into a tumbler of dealing with that question as we hear the words after these things. For you see, those words connect our protagonists to all the events in this book and then reveals the impact that he had on those who were in his sphere of influence. As a reminder, the first words we read in the beginning of chapter 1 in this book were, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, 
the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Essentially, the Lord said to Joshua, it's your turn, your time to lead those who are called by my name. From there, he was told what to do. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel, and how he was to do it. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, he was told, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God himself is the one that had spoken. Now the question is, how was he, that is Joshua, going to respond? The rest of the book is a chronicle, yes, primarily of God's faithfulness, his providence, his sovereignty on display, his grace and his mercy. But it's also a chronicle of a man's, God's man's manifest choice, his steadfast adherence to what God commanded, his reliance on God and the fruit of his commitment to lead as God directed. The only fault any one of us could find in this man Joshua was when he was deceived by the Gibeonites. This so as a result of his failure, it seemed, to consult God before he interacted with the Gibeonites. Even then, his handling of that situation after he learned of the deception was 100% in line with God's prescription concerning vows. Battle after battle, trial after trial, Think the battle at Ai in chapter 7, for example. Every step of the way, Joshua did exactly as the Lord had told him. Be careful to do according to all that is written in this book of the law. And how did God respond to Joshua's obedience? By manifesting his faithfulness as he does. He delivered one victory after another on behalf of his people. One victory after another until all that he had promised was in their possession. Now last week as we entered the last chapter of this book, we found Joshua recounting in more detail exactly what I just said. And after which he challenged the people not with a, a choice between the covenant God and false God, but with the absurdity of two bad choices which serve to highlight the fact that there is no, God, no good option besides the Creator. Then on the strength of the life he himself had lived, he at the end of his life, his race, his tenure as God's chosen vessel, uttered those words that have come to define his entire walk before God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those words that every last one of us should be emulating. Faithful to the very end. So much so that as we look at our passage, we immediately notice that there is an expression made by the Holy Spirit himself, which pointed to Joshua's fidelity to God. Where you ask me? Well, there are 16 instances in this book where the words servant of the Lord uh, is found. And do you know, in every instance except one, 
15 other times, it's talking about Moses. And where does it talk about Joshua? Here at the end of his walk. In the beginning and throughout, it was always he was Moses' assistant and commanded to walk in the words that God had penned. Of course, Moses' words were God's word that he had spoken through him. So now here he is with the moniker of God's servant finally being bestowed upon him. He has faithfully served God his entire life. And let me tell you, I believe the bestowing of that moniker, servant of the Lord, is akin to hearing those, these words coming from the lips of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. And let me further say to you that if Joshua had the same degree of insight of the one whom he was foreshadowing, that is Christ, as Paul did, we would have probably heard him say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, tell me this. Are you on the road to glory in such a manner that you will be able to say those same words? Not confident in your own strength, but in what God had accomplished in and through you. Is that what you are ascribing to? Now all that I've said thus far, prompted by those words after these things, was mostly concerned with the life of Joshua, a life lived as a precursor to our text. But now there's a focus shift from his life to his death, and not only his, but that of two other faithful men of God, Joseph and Eleazar, the priests. So given that's the case, I think it would be good for us to ask the following question. After having learned all that we did through this book, after having learned all so much from the life of these men, what can we now learn from their death? And with that in mind, there's four observations that I'd like to share with you. The first one is the faithful will finish that which was committed to them. Second, the faithful will never be forsaken. Third, the faithful will have an impact on theirs in their sphere of influence. And fourthly, we need something or someone better. So first, the faithful will finish that which was committed to them. We know from what we've read in this book that Israel as a whole has come into its inheritance. God has delivered on his promise and has done so wondrously. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, in light of those two verses and many others that I now assert that every single thing, I now assert that every single thing that was meant, that God is meant to accomplish, will be accomplished. Everything that God has purposed to be accomplished in your life will be accomplished. Nothing will hinder you if God has purposed your completion of a task for his purpose and for his glory. In the case of Joshua, the text tells us that he lived to be 110 years old. Do you know how many battles he fought? How much he had to deal with? And the degree of difficulty associated with all the challenges he faced? 
Yet through it all, one thing was consistent in the face of all things. His faith and commitment to obey God's word. Yes, he is the one who exercised those virtues. But answer me this, who gave him the ability or who gave him those virtues? The righteous fall seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity, Proverbs 24, 16 says. So let me ask you, why does the righteous rise? Because they're so powerful? Why does the righteous rise? Because they're kept for God's purpose. You might have heard me say it before, but I'll say it again. And until the cows come home, I'll keep saying it. Nothing can happen to you unless God allows it to for his purpose. And every single thing that you are meant to accomplish on this side of life will be accomplished in line with God's will. In verse 32, our text mentions Joseph and the fulfillment of his request to have his bones buried in the promised land. Guess how old he lived to be? 110. The same as Joshua. That's how the text connects both men. They both lived full lives that were sustained by God in order for him to accomplish his purposes in and through them. One took the people into Egypt where they, were, they prospered under his hand, and the other delivered the people with a full intention into their full inheritance in the promised land. Both were totally committed to the Lord, and both completed all that God had entrusted to them. Now, from our vantage point, what I'm saying can sometimes be hard to believe. Dean, are you telling me that a 20-year-old Christian whose life was senselessly cut off accomplished all that God had ordained for him or her to accomplish? My answer to that question is if that person was accounted by God, like Abraham, as righteous as a consequence of their fate, then you better believe that their early departure was not outside of God's sovereign control. And they did in fact accomplish all that God set out for them to accomplish. In some instances, we can see this better than others. 28-year-old Jim Elliot, pierced by the spears of the one whom he was sent to evangelize, tilled the soil that resulted in his wife's fruitful service among the very people who killed him. The apostles, all except one, were killed for the sake of the gospel. Their sacrifice in light of their cowardice showed after the, uh, the crucifixion has served as an apologetic to generation after generation, starting in the first century, young and old alike, all completed the work that God had ordained for them, the common factor being faith. The second thing that I'd like you to see here is that the righteous will never be forsaken. David himself said this, King David. He said in Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. That's a hard saying. Well, David, what gives? Have you not been connected with the organization named Voice of the Martyrs? Have you not heard Jesus speak of Lazarus and the rich young ruler? Lazarus seemed to be quite forsaken to me, Jesus. What gives? I ask you, 
Was Lazarus forsaken? If you know the end of that parable, then you know that Lazarus' end was more glorious than the end, the inheritance that these three men achieved or got in this particular passage. All three were brought to a place of rest here. All had been taken care of all the way to the end and now bore witness to the faithfulness of God. They had served and now their fate had become sight. But even as they inherited this temporal blessing, none of it was as great or as good as that which Lazarus had achieved or was brought into when he was in Abraham's bosom. But concerning these men, you know what else their fate did? Our third observation, it had an impact on those who were in their sphere of influence. Look at verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. This book has shown us that Joshua's steadfast commitment to the Lord was not just articulated in words, but also indeed, his every move with the exception of what seemed not to do uh, with the Gibeonites, with the exception of that, it seemed to be that where he was guided at all points by God's word. This is right in line with Proverbs 3, 5, 6, which tells us to trust God with all our heart, that we should not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge God and he will direct our path. From beginning to end, Joshua's entire life was an embodiment of this imperative. And as a result, it influenced everyone around him, not only while he was living, but even after he had died. Often when we think of how we'll be remembered, our legacy, our chief concern is how folks will remember us. But it was not so with Joshua. His legacy was written on the hearts of the people he served. His legacy was written on the hearts of the people he served. His chief concern, you see, was obeying God, not what people thought, not, not what people remembered about him, but his chief concern was about obeying God's word at every turn. And as a result of that motive, he still turned around and left the legacy. Think about who we're reading about tonight. <laughs> and all he wanted to do was to please God and to obey God. Can we say the same thing? You see, Joshua's legacy was in the heart. He left his legacy in the heart of the people whom he influenced. And so they continue not in Joshua's way, but in the ways of the Lord all the days of his life and even after he was gone. Eleazar, who is spoken of in verse 33, was involved in the apportionment of the land. Under Joshua's leadership and influence, he faithfully served as a high priest, and the next seven high priests came from him. This was the same type of impact Joseph had in Egypt, and not only amongst God's covenant people, but everyone else around him as well including the pharaohs. It wasn't until Exodus 1.8 where we hear these words, there arose a king who did not know Joseph. That's when God's people were subjected to the wiles of human depravity. 
Before then, even the propensity for evil was kept at bay by the influence of the man who lived by faith in the king of kings. The scriptures say that we are the salt of the world. We are the light and salt of the world. Jesus himself said that. And so the question becomes, like these men, are we salt in our homes? Are we salt in our community? Are we salt and light in our sphere of influence? Are we leaving an impression of godliness in the hearts of the people that we come across and are people being drawn because of our light? Now, in spite of all that that I said about the faithfulness of these men and the impact it had on all those around them, we should note that verse 31 and Exodus 1.8 that I talked about also serve as a somber reminder of our final observation, and that is we need something or someone better. In line with this observation, please note that the words we see in verse 31 are the very same words you'll find in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. The only difference you'll find is instead of saying Israel, it said the people. Now I want you to think about this. God called Abraham. He led God's people, then he died. Isaac led God's people, and then he died. Jacob led God's people, then he died. Joseph led God's people, and then he died. Moses led God's people, and then he died. Joshua led God's people, and then he died. In every case, the men of God were able to turn God's people towards God. They were not perfect, but they were God's broken sticks whom he used to weave his path to righteousness. But there's a huge problem One that you might have picked up on as I just mentioned. These men of faith who led God's people, they all died. And again, that's what the book that immediately follows this one is about. A vacuum of God-centered leadership. And almost immediately in chapter 1 verse 10 in the book of Judges we hear these words. And there arose a generation, another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done for Israel. And what was the result? In Judges 17 and and chapter 21, uh, 25 and Judges 17, 6, we hear these words. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us why that posture was a problem. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That is, it is infested with sin. And thereby Romans 3, 10 11 would also have to be in full effect. It states, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And what thereby follows is Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. And so in the absence of a God-centered, scripture-based shepherd, there is nothing left but a canvas for the utter depravity of fallen man to be on display. And it is that that is foreshadowed here in verse 31 by the death of these men and expressed throughout the book of Judges. As sheep, we need a shepherd, you see, who will always be there for us, who will, one who will not die, leaving us without a guide. 
We're prone to stray, we're told. We need someone or something greater than Moses. Moses said that there will come a prophet greater than me. We need something or someone greater than Joshua. We need something or someone greater than all the men who have come before in Scripture. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we have in Jesus Christ. He is our great shepherd. And the great thing is, he is alive. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. He's alive and actively leading us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Concerning these three men in our text, one author pointed out that as the head of Israel, Joshua acted as a ruler akin to a king. Joseph acted as a prophet. Thus we hear him in, in, in our Genesis 4.8 asking the question and saying, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. He spoke, you see, as God gave him utterance. And Eliezer acted as high priest standing in the gap between God and man. All three of these men died and were buried in their inheritance. None could exert any influence on their inheritance or anything else beyond the point that they did. But hey, our prophet, our priest, and our king still lives right now. He came into his inheritance, us, the church, and is now actively nurturing and leading it. Thus we hear the words, fear not, speaking to us, our living God, our living leader, our living prophet king says to us, fear not for I am with you even to the end of the age. Our Lord is not buried in his inheritance like these three men. No, we live in him and are indwelt by his spirit who is keeping us. I tell you, we've been blessed with that which is better and that which is much greater. That is, in fact, if you read the book of Hebrews with that understanding, that is exactly the theme of the book of Hebrews. So make no mistake about it. Joshua is alive and doing just as much as he did in the first century. Remember, the name Joshua is the same name Jesus. So Joshua is still alive and doing the same things that he did in the first century. And according to Jesus' own word, even more. Because if you remember in John 14, he promised that those who would be, who are his, would do greater works. Because we are the one that are sharing the gospel. And the Spirit is using us to bring people to life. God's people to life. As we walk in our highways and byways, in our spiritual influence, in all our spheres of influence rather. It's not about legacy. It's not about looking good. It's not about sounding good. It's about being righteous, the righteousness of God flowing through us so that we can be witnesses to those in our sphere of influence so God can use us as his vessels to draw others to him. Thus we hear the words, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Not go and look good. Not go and sound good. Not go and worry about how great you look on the job. Not go and do anything like that. Go and make disciples. Go and live a life of obedience to God's word. Don't worry about the outcomes. Worry about how you're pleasing God and whether or not you're being obedient to him. 
And again, every single thing that he has purposed in your life, that he will accomplish through you, as he said in Ephesians, will absolutely come to pass. Let me share this other thing with you. Because all these men, again, they died. All the witnesses you see in chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, everyone that came before Jesus. And that's why Hebrews 1 said he spoke through those people in the past, but now he's speaking through our Lord. Because you see, here's the other thing. We need a God. The reason we need Jesus to be alive or the person to be alive is because we don't need to just go to heaven. We, need, we don't just need to help to get to heaven. We need help while we're here. Anybody who is in here, everyone who's in here, know you need help. You know you need Jesus or something, and you ain't coming to me for help because I'm just as bad or worse. All right? So all of us need a living Savior, a living guide who is powerful and able. And that's what we have. We have a God that takes care of us, not just so we can get to heaven, but is taking care of us each and every moment that we walk on the face of the earth. Every single one of us in here, if you are following Christ, if you're walking obedience, don't deceive yourself into thinking is because of how smart you are or how strong you are or how godly you are or anything like that. No, praise God for sustaining you. Praise God for keeping you. Praise God for the indwelling presence of his spirit that is able to keep you. Yes, we are called to work, but it's him who is working in and through us to accomplish his purposes. And so we need a God that's alive, a person, something that can take care of us while we're living on this side of earth. And as we end the study, brothers and sisters, let me say this. Joshua was great. The more we went through the praises of the pages of Scripture, we should have seen that, man, this was a great man. But don't miss this fact. Throughout our times in this book, he was always pointing to someone better and someone greater, our living king, Jesus Christ. I talked about him talking about finishing the race. <clears throat> you go through this entire book, and you don't see Joshua talking about himself at any time. His focus was on Christ through God. He didn't see Christ, but he was focused on God's purposes, God's commission, and that's what he did. He was engulfed in the ways of the Lord. Look at the, 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 um, the testimony of the entire book, and you see it. And let me say this. Without God's presence, I want you to check this out for yourself. In Genesis 19, that's where you have Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's where you have the angels, the people beating on the doors because they wanted to molest the angels, right? You move forward to Judges 19, where now there is no king. There is no living guide. And you know what you have? You have the men who were God's covenant people raping a woman to death. And what is being communicated? When you look at that in the Hebrew, you see that the wording is exactly the same. The person who structured Judges 19 structured it after Genesis 19. 
Because you know why? You know what they were communicating? The people of God themselves had become, had become worse than the pagans in the world. That is what happened when we are without the indwelling presence of our Lord. That is what happens when you walk outside the obedient path that God has set before us. That is why we need a living Savior. And thank God we have one. Every Sunday we say he is risen. And you say what? Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to work our way through this book. We thank you for allowing us to see the life of Joshua and his steadfast commitment to you. We thank you for revealing on this side of the cross that he was a precursor to our Savior, who is better and greater in every respect. I believe Joshua was sitting in heaven even now at the feet of our Lord and basking in the glory of who he is, of who our Lord is. I believe that he now recognizes his faith as sight and that he would want nothing greater than for all of us in this room to experience exactly what he is experiencing now. Father, I pray that you would give us the seed of righteousness so that we might walk obediently before you just as Joshua did. We pray that you would give us hearts, Lord, not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and allow you by the power of your spirit to direct our path. We know that without you, we are nothing. We know that without you, we would be sinners on the par of the worst of worst on this side of earth. But we know that your mercy has rescued us and those mercies that are renewed each morning is keeping us. And so we thank you for all that and ask again that you would now cause us to take this knowledge, to be grateful and to walk out with hearts so full of gratitude that we would want to do nothing but share the gospel with those who are in our sphere of influence. The gospel that you delivered us marvelously, and you will do the same for them. Father, we thank you again and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.